Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are listening to part two of our look at Rising Damp. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, please do go back and check that out first. We've already looked at the careers of Leonard Rossiter and Francis de la Tour. We've talked about Eric Chappell's play The Banana Box, from which this sitcom came. So you've already missed all that. Go back and check it out if you haven't already. On with the show. Okay, so let's go back to our episode. Oh, so yes. we, we've opened up, we've got Rigsby talking to Miss Jones, mm-hmm. and he asks her on a date to the wrestling, which I think is, yes. is a very 1974 reference. Well, obviously, they, they have a guy who lives there. In that first series, mm. there's another guy who lives there who's a wrestler, and he, he appears in a couple of episodes. Right, okay. So they kind of mentioned it previously. And so you talked about these different scenes. So that's the first scene. What's the second scene in this episode? We go uh, upstairs Mm -hmm. to the attic room where Alan and Phil are uh, talking about women. Now, Alan and Phil, obviously, in the first episode, we introduce them like they have to live together now, get on with it. But very quickly, they become friends yeah. and confidants so we see that and en- we see that energy right here if you've never seen the show before you go oh these two young lads they're friends they share this hat they you know share this room but it's interesting you say these two young lads are friends and they are close but i think it's i think philip's like a big brother you know it's it's almost yeah. a paternal relationship philip's kind of looking after his, yeah. his younger well yeah like his younger brother yeah i think alan is alan is the naive yes. you know he's the the kind of young yeah innocent lad whereas phil is much more worldly mm-hmm. and so um, they're talking about girls they're dating, and you know Philip wants to bring his girlfriend back, but Rigsby won't let him. And they're, but they set up the plot, which is, hey, look, if we get him and Miss Jones together, they'll go out tonight, and then we can have our girls back. Nice. We just set that up, you know, a couple minutes scene, and then Rigsby enters. Oh, you forgot the detail about Alan's got himself an earring. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> which and then so I mean, well, I mean, Rigsby comes in immediately starts attacking Alan for being effeminate, which is like the go-to thing. Like, that's what he does with Alan and with Philip. It's like, yeah, exactly. And an earring. Oh my God. <laughs> Stop the world. I want to get off. <laughs> oh my God. What's that? What? There, on your ear. Quick. Something glinting. What is it? <laughs> it's an earring. And it, oh. Stop the world. I want to get off. <laughs> What's wrong with it? He looks like the gypsy's morning. But everybody's wearing them these days. Thank God help England, that's all I can say. Let's hope the Russians don't find out. I can just see us all marching into battle in bloody earrings. That'll really send us through the field with the enemy. Philip thinks it's all right. Oh, he would. He thinks a bone through the nose is all right. But that's that's what these these guys are. It's this generational gap. He doesn't understand the young people and what they're all up to. The permissive society. They're, they're all just trying to have sex. Whereas that's exactly what he's trying to do as well. He yeah. just he, yeah. he just won't admit it to himself. Yeah. He so yeah he he makes fun of Alan for being effeminate. He'll make fun of Phil for being uh, primitive. Usually, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Here's the line. He's oh it's all right for you lot in Africa. You're closer to nature. I haven't been close to nature since last Christmas, and it wasn't very close then. <laughs> there is a nice run of euphemism in yeah. Eric Chappell's writing. He, he, he makes quite a subtle euphemism. In fact, I wrote, I wrote down, um, I went through this whole thing. I made notes of every joke, okay. um, <laughs> as in every big laugh. So not including little titters or a bit of a rolling laugh, just the kind of big punchline laugh. Okay. And... <laughs> Over the course of this 24 minutes, yeah. I've got 101 wow. laughs. 
That's amazing. And I broke it down a little bit. Miss Jones has three laughs. <laughs> now, that's interesting. Obviously, Rigsby has the most laughs. But Miss Jones laughs... One of them is a physical comedy thing where she pulls the doorknob off uh-huh. after he's fixed it. That's a bit of a physical gag. The other two laughs that Miss Jones gets, her first line is, could you look at my doorknob? And it gets a laugh. And I was like, that's not an innuendo, is it? <laughs> Does that make sense as an really. innuendo? And then the other big laugh she gets where she says, Mr. Rigsby, extinguish your stick. <laughs> and that's not that's not really an innuendo either, is it? <laughs> but it gets but, a laugh. But I think I, we've talked about this before, about my incredulity at how ecstatic a studio audience are to be there. Right. I, I, I can't remember which episode it was specifically. We've talked in previous episodes about the audience going absolutely nuts for lines that aren't that funny. Yeah. There's a little bit of hype involved and, you know, you're in the room and other people are in the, in the thing. moment. Yeah. And obviously it helps to the production. But yeah, those lines aren't objectively funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you've got to give something to delivery there. Yes. You know, the way that Delator delivers that in this kind of, just the way you speak it will kind of present it as a slight innuendo. If you actually think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But that's nice. And it's also, yeah, like it's within the context of the scene yeah. in which there's a, there's all this repartee anyway. But yeah, I'll, I'll come back to my kind of joke list a little bit as we go along because right. there's some little moments like... We're talking about Alan and his earring and his long hair and Rigsby's mm-hmm. constantly denigrating him. So let's talk more about the Alan character now. Uh, I mean, he's the youngster. Like you say, he's he's supposed to be a medical student. He's supposed to be early 20s. Talks a big game or, or, or wants to talk a big game with women, but is actually mm. pretty useless with them. And that is kind of highlighted when with Phil, because Phil's very good with the ladies. Yeah. But I think his Alan's front, Alan's uh, bravado is paper thin. You know, he'll he'll sort mm. of he'll sort of have the you know I'll, I'll bring a girl back, and Philip will say, "Well, you you've you've never brought a girl back," and he just crumbles straight away. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> uh, he says, what, yeah. "What about that girl that keeps following me? What girl? The one on the racing bike? Oh, you can't count her. She never dismounts." <laughs> And of course, we get a call back to that later when he brings a girl back up to the room. We'll come back to that when we get to that scene. Let's go on to the next scene. Well, no, well, what we set up in that scene is the plan. They help Rigsby. Mm. They give him a Matt Monroe album and uh, Alan gives him these tranquilizer pills that he's got. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Like, that was a thing in the 70s. Here you go. Take a couple of these downers. <laughs> like, yeah, that was perfectly normal to take off. a couple of pills. Uh, where do you get those? Were they prescribed on the NHS? <laughs> <laughs> what for? I, I don't... I'm not, I don't know where they came from. I think the idea is a medical student, so you can kind of just get... What, so he can like steal this? stuff from the pharmacy? I don't think so. <laughs> he says he got them from a friend. <laughs> but yeah, we, we sort of set up the mechanics of what's to come here, and that is the next scene, which is Rigsby attempting to seduce Miss Jones, mm. but this time he is drugged up to the eyeballs because he's taken all these pills. Yes. This is probably the main bit of physical comedy in the in the episode. Well, yeah, this is my least favourite scene, and, and I think... I, you know, generally, I'm not a fan of physical comedy. It's not really what floats my boat. Right, yeah. Um, and yeah, it just seems it just seems silly and farcical, you know. So he, he's playing the record at the wrong speed, first of all, which, which you know, is, is hilarious. She's saying, oh, Mr. Rigsby, the record. And he can't tell because he's ripped off his tits. <laughs> yes. There's quite a lot of nice little gags, though. Like, where he goes, where's the handle for the, <laughs> the gramophone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, he's so old. Well, it's not because he's so old. It's because his record player's so old. Because why would he buy a new yes. one there's nothing wrong with this one <laughs> yeah and he's doing the faces and, and like staggering all over the place he's getting a lot of laughs there's a bit in the first scene with Miss Jones in which he sits next to her 
Mm. And he just sort of nudges her over a little bit as he sits next to her and, and kind of gives her like, oh, do you know what I'm saying? Kind of that, that little sort of apologetic noise he makes. Yeah. And he gets a laugh for that. And it's that's that's Leonard Ruster. That, that is classic Leonard Ruster, that little physical movement, yeah. the little noise and all yeah, that. Yeah, that is good business. And then we, we get a kind of callback to that where he again sits next to her on the settee, but he's so drugged up he just sort of drops onto the settee <laughs> and, and shuffles her over. So I thought that was a nice little moment in the whole thing. You're right. I think the show as a whole has an easy tendency to go to farce. There's quite mm. a lot of that, actually. A lot of the plots are built around that. And I think it does it well. And and, and just talk about the show in general. It's very dialogue-driven and there's very character-driven stuff. But they will have these sitcom-y plots, you yeah. know? And I, I th- and I think that's what I like least. I'm not... It's just my personal taste. I don't. I, I like the snappy dialogue yeah. more than the farcical situation. Yes, I think I do think this show handles it well uh, when they do that. You know, it is just like oh, the vicar's coming round and the cat's knocked over the best china yes. or, or whatever. But it is they do it well, and it's just because it's well written and the characters and actors are obviously good. So I think it gets away with a lot more than. But I think we were. You know, we talked before about that pink carnation episode with the lonely hearts, the blind date, yeah. and then we watched another episode, clunk click, where. Rigsby has a car and he's had a bump with someone else and this guy's coming mm-hmm. round and the bit that I don't like about it which is what I don't like about farce is that you can see from the moment of the setup it's just like oh god and then we're gonna you know we can see what's gonna happen he's gonna come round and it's gonna be embarrassment and I just don't like that it just all seems too formulaic to me yeah I know what you mean I know what you mean but it's a lot easier to write that stuff than yeah and, and, and obviously Eric Chappell's writing however many episodes a year so I, I, far be it for me to criticise the man I've never written anything actually just speaking of Eric Chappell, uh, if I may give you a little bit more information about him right now, yeah. just you made me think of something there. He uh, so this was his first show, but he was writing other stuff, and he got another show commissioned at pretty much the same time called The Squirrels. The Squirrels. I suppose you've ever heard of The Squirrels? No, it hasn't really gone down in history in the same way. Uh, no, and uh, he, I, I watched a few episodes of it, just sort of get a taste of it, like that he the stuff in the first series that was going out at the same time as Rising Damp. It's not as good. It's a. It feels a lot more sick comedy and yeah farcical mm. but the acting is just not to the same standard it, it, the whole thing feels sloppier you know the filming and, and the acting and the acting's not bad by any means and the writing still feels good but yeah he got these two series commissioned at the same time and all of a sudden he was like right we need like 12 episodes <laughs> right and so he burned himself out a little bit and he sort of stuck with rising damp and then they got in other writers for the squirrels to to do extra episodes for that okay which he didn't like he thought they were crap <laughs> the other writers <laughs> so uh, I haven't watched all the episodes yet so I can't really judge but it was interesting to watch that as a as a side piece because it's like it's yeah the the word is looser I think it's just it feels much more like a slack 70s knock it out sitcom yeah. whereas Rising Damp feels so tight mm. and I think that's Leonard Rossiter frankly that's he's the one who was yeah, making that happen so. well look while we're on the subject of Eric Chappell we talked about his background tell me about what he did after this he did Only When I Laugh oh right okay he did Duty Free Oh, duty-free, hapless holidaymaker Keith Barron. <laughs> yes. Home to Roost, he did. Home to Roost. That was John Thor, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes, I remember yes. So that was quite a big show at his time. John Thor and Reese Dinsdale? That's right, I yes. I remember that, yes. Yeah. A couple other things. Uh, he did Fiddler's 3, which is a remake of The Squirrels. And, you know, he he writes a lot of plays as well. Uh, apparently, they're very popular with, like, you know, um, amateur dramatics and stuff. Okay. Simple comedy scripts. Yeah. Four characters, you know, all in one setting. You know, your classic... Repertory. Uh, yeah, rep scripts, yeah. Very sitcom-y. And 
he seems to have made a, a pretty healthy living off of the back of that. Yeah, he's certainly assured his legacy. You know, Rising Damp was not a fluke because he, he went off and wrote Only When I Laugh did extremely well. Duty Free was, you know, of its time. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Rising Damp might be the one that he's remembered for. But to say he wasn't just a churn out writer, like, like he didn't come through the mm. sketch writing, here's a brief, knock something out for us kind of thing. It would be much more possible that he had this kind of very one big thing that was a bit more personal to him and then and like he wrote everything he knew into it or, or whatever. He, he always wrote the play and then sort of turned it into a sitcom. That seemed to be the way he liked to do it. Right. So Duty Free is based on a play ah, okay. uh, as well. Yeah. That's interesting. So, uh, but yeah, he's he, he seems to have done all right out of it. He seems pretty happy with his success. I've heard interviews with him. So we're still at the scene with the, the, the drugged Rigby, Rigsby. Yes. That scene kind of ends in farce and a big laugh and fade to black. So what happens next? Well, that's pretty much our halfway point in the show. And then the second half of the show is kind of the same again. We we reestablish it. The Matt Munro and, and like chatter up kind of thing was Alan's technique. Yeah. So now he's going to use Philip's technique, Lovewood, which Philip assures him is this Lovewood stuff. Yeah, but we also have it that in that scene where he comes and admonishes Alan for drugging him, yeah. giving him the thing. It's not a little bit of writing I wanted to pop out because the the scene starts with Philip and Alan and Philip says, oh, he's, he's coming after you and he, he says he can't feel his teeth. <laughs> and then Rigsby comes in and it's 20 seconds later, he says, I still can't feel my teeth as a punchline. It gets a huge laugh. Yeah. After we've just had the exact same joke 20 seconds earlier, <laughs> which got a laugh. That must be deliberate, surely. I don't know, because it was... It it's was odd repetition, isn't it? It was an odd one. And the turns your water green and my water's turned green. And then the the girl he's meeting later says, oh, my sister had them. It turned her water's green. Gets a laugh every time. <laughs> it's, it's exactly the same joke every time. It gets a laugh. But that's that's an interesting, you know, you could talk about something wrong with your pee in a different way and it still be funny, it still be a callback to what I yeah. said earlier. But to use the same words, it must be deliberate. It's got to be the way he wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so um, Rigsby comes in, he sort of tells off Alan, Alan runs away, and then he has this discussion with Phil, as we've, we've, we've sorted out. And then we have the next scene in which Alan has got a lady friend mm. over to his place. So yeah, we kind of set this up earlier in the sense that he's saying, "Oh, I've got, I've, I have got a girlfriend." And you don't believe me? I've got a girlfriend. So he gets this girl up to his room. Now this is just a one-off guest, Liz Edmiston, uh, who's playing Maureen. But here's the interesting thing, right? When I was doing my joke tally, she's in this one scene really, and she gets eleven laughs. She has a lot of punchlines. That's more than Philip and Miss Jones have combined <laughs> in the whole episode. Yeah. So she is the comedy character in this scene, and even when Riggs becomes in she still gets a few laughs which is rare rigsby out of the 101 laughs rigsby got 68 right uh, that's obviously his job like i said miss jones doesn't get any alan has 13 philip has six most of them are in the scene where it's just the two of them uh, and then rigsby comes in and after rigsby comes in it's just rigsby it's all him yeah phil gets a line in about help the aged but the, but basically whenever rigsby in is a scene he just dominates it everyone else has to become the straight man to, to kind of set him up with sure. stuff but that works that somehow works and the fact that you can take him out of a scene and you've got alan and philip t- chatting and it still works and they can get laughs as well i guess that must be good writing i suppose as we said before 
before. It's a strong cast, isn't it? You know, it's good performances from everyone. Yes. So when Maureen comes in, her and Alan have this scene, and and it's more, mostly Maureen having getting the getting the gags. She is a very distinctly gag character. She's she's hitting punchlines, you know, in the same way that Rigsby does. Whereas. You know, even Alan's laughs in that. Are, uh... But that that situation is Alan's trying to seduce this girl. He's trying to be quiet so Rigsby doesn't hear him. He puts the record on and she can't even hear it. Yeah. You know, so he is he's under tension. <laughs> you know, he's not relaxed, <laughs> and she's got all the control in that situation, so she can. He's yeah. the butt of the humor. Yeah. Everything he tries, she just knocks it back. Yeah. <laughs> knocks yeah, yeah. It back. <laughs> and, and then we get his earring again. <laughs> he says, "Oh, they're very fashionable." She goes, "Oh yeah, my our coal man's got one." <laughs> <laughs> He's told her that he's a doctor, even though he's a first-term medical student. (laughs) This is uh, another element of Alan's character, and something that obviously Richard Beckinsale brings to it. He's a very likeable character. He's very sweet. And there's just a couple of moments when he crosses a line. Uh, We talked about when he's a bit homophobic uh, in that other episode, and that kind of just doesn't play well these days. But I think at the time, perhaps it wouldn't have mattered as much. Mm. But in this scene, he offers her a sweet, and she says, they're not sweets, they're tranquilizers. (laughs) My sister Adam turned a what? And like he's trying to give this girl a tranquilizer. Like he's trying to he's trying to dose her. <laughs> yeah, and it's like like you don't get the sense it's full like Bill Cosby here. He's he's, he's trying to get her to relax because he's got things he's got. Much. It's kind of like you know, oh, have another bottle of wine. You know, let's open another bottle of wine. That kind of feel to it. But obviously, it has a little bit more of a creepy. It edge. Definitely, yeah. I think as I said before, I think taking a couple of pills to chill you out was a lot more socially acceptable in the seventies. However, yes, yeah, it's still very much giving her a roofie to calm her down. <laughs> and it's definitely one of the moments where that character just over a line yeah. and it gets away with it because the character if you know the character you know he's so likeable you know he's kind of incompetent so you'd never get a sense that oh as soon as she's going to pass out and then he's going to feel her up it's like he's not going to do that and so it gets away with it but definitely just sort of seen on its own if that's a clip that would definitely feel a bit yeah. off today but belying that we've got the rest of the scene he's just a sweet young boy trying to get with this girl and he can't even get a kiss off of her and she's obviously uh, not letting him get away with anything no she's uh, she's a lot more streetwise than he Yes. Uh, and then Miss Jones crashes the party. Mm-hmm. She can smell burning. Obviously, we know Mr. Rigsby is uh, burning some wood somewhere. So that all gets broken up. Rigsby comes in and, and she's hidden. Maureen's hidden under the bed, and etc, etc. But before we get to that bit, we have the Rigsby and Miss Jones scene in which he attempts to seduce her with his wood. <laughs> what on earth's that? This a piece of wood. <laughs> Mr. Rigsby, stop wafting it around. You'll start a fire. I'll start a fire, all right, Miss Jones. Here, have you noticed anything yet? Yes, the most appalling smell. It's an ordinary wood, you know, special. Breathe in. Go on, see what happens. I don't know what you've got in mind, Mr. Rigsby, but nothing's going to happen. Give way to me, Jones. Don't fight it. Give way to it. Give way to it. I had no intention of giving way to it. Please extinguish your stick. Which is a phenomenal bit of, again, and just a, an amazing bit of Leonard Rossiter yeah. here. I think it's just something that he brings so much after. Another little note here. He comes in, like, wafting his wood. There were at least four distinct, separate laughs that came purely from wafting a piece of wood around. <laughs> Excellent work. And, like, yeah, how do you do that? How do you get <laughs> just the keep getting the same laugh again and again? And, of course, it doesn't work. But he's so confident. Yeah, he's convinced this is going to work. Philip told him it's going to work. <laughs> 
but yes, it doesn't. And then we get him sprayed in the face with the spritzer. So there's a bit of a line of physical comedy that kind of goes with the farcical element, yeah. I guess. That is a pretty classic. The amount of times he gets water thrown in his face or a cake smashed into his face. It's it's a lot for a comedy that you don't think of as being mm. stupid. <laughs> well, I did that moment where she takes the spritzer bottle and sprays it on him. That took me out. That for me is that little bit too much physical comedy, that unrealism. Yeah. Incidentally, that's a very 70s and 80s sitcom trope, those bottles. I've never seen one of those yes. bottles in the wild. <laughs> where Did everyone have one of those bottles? Just in case they were sexually harassed. <laughs> it's just you can, so you can spray it on someone's crotch. Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> there is something very 70s about that. It's like, it's having the, a kind of a bar, isn't there? Isn't it like, or, a, you know, Alan brings out his tray with bottles on it and blows the dust off them. <laughs> she said, do, what, do you want to have a drink? And she said, I'd rather drink out me canister, which, uh, as a cyclist, I enjoyed. <laughs> Well, shall we, before we move away from this scene, we talked about Alan. Let's talk about yes. Richard Beckinsale now. So give me give me his background. Richard Beckinsale is sort of a classic, always wanted to be an actor, you know, from a very young age. Mm. Pursued that and was pretty good. He got into RADA. Oh, really? And went straight from there into rep. So, you know, he was just a young working actor. Very handsome. By all accounts, very likeable. Just a really laid-back, charming young man. Did his job well. Never caused anyone any trouble. Yeah. You know, that will give you a good career. In 1970, he got his first sort of lead sitcom role in The Lovers Mm -hmm. with Paula Wilcox, which is about these two young kids who were supposed to be about 20, 21 or something like that. They're just, you know, they're lovers. And it's young people dating and the problems that come with that. I watched a couple of episodes of it. Because I, I hadn't seen it before, yeah. so I thought I'll watch a couple for this. I really liked it. It's it's a nice little bit of work. It, it does feel a bit of its time, yeah. in the sense it's like 60s slash early 70s dating, and the expectations of she wants to get married, mm. he's doesn't, you know, he just wants to get his end away. But there's a real kind of interesting language that they have between them, you know, the way they talk to each other. It, it is really nice. There's some genuine chemistry between them. I really like Paula, Paula Wilcox. Paula Wilcox is a great actress. I'm sure we'll cover her at some I, point. Yeah, I primarily know her from Man About the House, yeah. but I I always liked her in that and she has really great chemistry with Richard O'Sullivan in that as well but that meant that when they came to do Rising Damp he was the one of the main cast who had sitcom experience so you'd said earlier about the cast in the play he was the one who hadn't been in the play right yes so Paul Jones was asked to do the show and he was like mm, yeah, the play didn't even do that well you know we never made any money out of it <laughs> yeah, sod it. Uh, so <laughs> he let that go and so they brought in Richard Beckinsale and, and like off the back of the lovers you know like he's always played this kind of slightly naive young man who's, you know, is trying to be part of the permissive society, but no one gives give him any permission. So, yeah. and, and that's what he's playing in Rising Damp, really. Yeah. Rising Damp started at pretty much the exact same time as Porridge. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting, because if Leonard Rossiter's famous for Rising Damp and Reggie Perrin, then Richard Beckinsale is Rising Damp and Porridge. Very much two yes. huge roles, or, or famous roles. But I, yeah. I, I don't know, my, my misconception was Porridge came after Rising Damp. Clearly, I'm wrong about that. The whole almost simultaneously. I think I think Porridge went out in the September and Rising Damp went out in November or, or you know, vice versa, something like that. They were very close in terms of starting in 74. In fact, you know, Rising Damp did one more series. But other than that, they were pretty much, you know, in step. Porridge had three series, I think. He got to a point where he was 
sick of playing the same character. Uh, you know, the kind of slightly naive young man, but he's very likeable. He was pushing 30 and he was still playing 21-year-old virgins in sitcoms and he wanted to do more serious stuff. Yeah, I was just going to say that. If he's a rather trained actor, I'm sure he was he was frustrated that he wasn't playing the Dane or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And he's not a comedy actor. Like, he, in Por- both in Porridge and Rising Damp, you got Ronnie Barker and Leonard Rossiter doing he's the, the straight heavy man, lifting. Isn't he? He's the, yeah, he's a straight man. I, I, I don't want to use that for any of them, really, because I don't think it's quite fair. It's not as simple as that. They He can be very funny. Yeah. So, yes, but... With, I don't want to quite kind of just slap that on him. But, whereas you might look at Leonard Rosser and go, would I take him seriously if he was playing a lawyer or something? Yeah. I think with Richard Beckinsale, you would. Of course, the real tragedy of Richard Beckinsale is that he died very suddenly. He died even at 19... Uh, he, uh, much younger even than Rossiter, didn't he? Yes, he was 31. Oh my goodness, I didn't realise it was that young. When he died. Wow. 1978, I think. Maybe 1979. Wow. Yeah, very young. He so was how did he die? A heart attack. God. Kind of undiagnosed heart problem that nobody really knew anything about. Obviously, that means that whenever people are talking about him now, they, they're they talking about someone who kind of went out in their peak. Mm. And it just seems like everyone loved him. In the same way that people talk about Leonard Rossiter as, as being difficult, but hey, it was worth it because he was so great. Yeah. With Richard Beckinsale, it's just like everybody loved him. You just wanted to be with him. You wanted to be around him because he was just so amazing. And that translates as well to like, oh, he was an amazing actor. And while I've been going through this... This show I've been going up and down on like is he a good actor like have I seen anything really special about him like he's obviously good he is very good they all are actually in this show but I've seen I went out of my way to kind of find some other bits and pieces of him acting and, and specifically some serious stuff and yeah. I've only ever seen him do that same kind of thing and then when he's being serious it just doesn't I don't know, it just doesn't play. He can't play a hard man. And I think he's one of perhaps one of those people who could have aged out of it eventually and, and gone into a new phase of his career, but he never had the opportunity. Yeah, maybe. He was definitely trying to do that. So he's not in series four of Rising Down. Really? Ostensibly, that was because he had theatre commitments. He was doing a show on the West End. Uh, he was doing a musical, I think. He was, you know, he's trying to branch out and doing whatever he could. But I think there's definitely an element of he was sick of these same roles. Mm. He was trying to get more serious roles, trying to get more adult roles, you know, a bit more grown And was he, in that last series, was he replaced? Was there a, 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 a new fourth member of the cast? No. So when Francis de la Tour missed a few episodes in series two, they brought in a new housemate, this woman. It was kind of there. It wasn't quite a replacement, but there was another regular there. Yeah. But they didn't do that here. They just sort of brought in different people. They used the the characters they've got. And it worked. I mean, series four had the best viewing figures. We watched Pink Carnation the Lonely Hearts one that I mentioned and Mm. I'm afraid to admit it hadn't occurred to me that Richard Beckinsale wasn't in it until you just pointed out no of course he wasn't was he it's it's surprising isn't it like it's surprisingly how little he's missed yeah I'm I'm, I'm genuinely I'm I'm a little bit annoyed at myself I'm surprised I didn't. I didn't. Hadn't realised. Watched the whole episode and hadn't even missed him. And I've watched a few episodes as well where Philip is barely in it. Mm-hmm. I think the farcical episodes tend to favour him and Miss Jones because yeah. that works for that tone. Whereas Philip particularly doesn't get involved in far. Philip is so dignified. Mm-hmm. Like you can't do silly things with him. The closest they get is where they have, end up having a boxing fight and he throws the match. And that's kind of a bit physical and silly. But even in that, it's they're training to boxing and Philip is just a really good boxer and he's training and you can see he's going to smash his head in uh, whereas Rigsby's training is stupid and silly yeah. and I think perhaps that's in a comedy perhaps that's a weakness of the Phil character that you can't be silly with him uh, with Alan similar 
But yeah, it's definitely, it favours Miss Jones and Rigsby for the fast stuff. Yeah. And I think, like you were saying, probably my least favourite stuff in the show. <laughs> but yeah, just to sort of Richard Beckinsale, he, he, he got married very young. That kind of all ended when he went to, to London and, you know, he was trying to get his acting career started and all mm-hmm. that. But his daughter from that marriage is Samantha Beckinsale, who's gone on to do some other uh, sitcom stuff. She was in Get Well Soon, which uh, I talked about in our Steptoe and Son. That's uh, so Britcom pod that we're going straight to Samantha Beckinsale and not his other daughter. <laughs> well, yes, of course, his, his younger daughter, Kate Beckinsale, went to, went to that America and, and did big Hollywood. Yeah, show. but has she been in Game On? <laughs> then I'm not interested. <laughs> Yeah, yes. But um, uh, yes, so his first child, Samantha Beckinsale, because they split up and the mother got remarried and moved to Scotland and this other man adopted the child. And so Richard Beckinsale was really encouraged to let that go. Just like, look, she's got a new dad now. She doesn't need you. And so he didn't see this kid for years. And sort of the good thing, I suppose, is that he reconnected with her sort of the last sort of six months before he died. And so that's just reconnected with her a little bit. Yeah. Uh, She would only have been 11 or 12 or something. That's interesting. And then, yeah, Kate Beckinsale was so his second marriage so that was the sort of the family he lived with and she was five years old when he died and all that the fact they've both gone on to be actors is is interesting but perhaps he is still better known than them in British television I suppose well yeah okay maybe in in British sitcoms but Kate Beckinsale's a huge (laughs) star (laughs) I know we're joking about it but she's a Hollywood star werewolves and that yeah whatever (laughs) Back to our episode then. So what happens next? We've just got the kind of wrap up here, haven't we? He's he's had a wash out with Miss Jones. The love stick, the love wood didn't work. Mm-hmm. We uh, have a little bit of more of a moment where Maureen comes out from under the bed. We get the, the fallout of all that. Yeah. Philip comes back in. We get a little tag on his whole story. How he, Because he helped Rigsby, he wants a favour, but then Rigsby's not going to let him have it. But then Philip gets the last laugh because he was burning the wardrobe. Yes. Which is pretty typical that Rigsby is still sort of the fool at the end. Yeah, he, he still Rigsby's furious and he wants to take out on someone, but he, he always ends up being the fool. Yeah. So that's the episode. Um, we haven't actually talked about Don Warrington uh, as no, an let's actor talk about Don, in let's any details. So yeah, Don Warrington, he was actually born in Trinidad. Then his family moved when he was five to Newcastle, as I'm sure you can tell by the accent. Oh, He's a Geordie. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know where that voice comes from. Like, I don't know Because he's got such a silky, smooth voice. And like you hear him talking, he talks like that. Mm, I've seen him in in general. That's his real voice. But I suppose it's that acquired English voice that, you know, when when people are trying to assimilate themselves, I suppose. I don't know about that. Because even if like, even if you talk about, we talked about this with Wilfred Bramble, you know, he had this very cut glass British accent Mm. uh, when you hear him speak, even though he's Irish. Yeah. Yeah, actors do tend to plumb it up a bit. And part of the, obviously the appeal of the Philip character is that it doesn't seem right it it feels wrong it doesn't suit his look to have that voice yeah because it, it, people who look like him aren't sort of posh british people are they and that's the, not in the 70s that's what that's what affords him the status that undercuts rigsby yes and it's what makes that character quite groundbreaking you know in a mm. way not just to have a, a black character on tv but in a, a way that you've never seen them before well, black can, people can be posh as well <laughs> wow yeah but yeah, he's um, pretty classic, went to acting school, went into rep, you know, all that. But got the banana box job when he was very young. 
he was 23 when Rising Damp started. You know, he's young, and yeah. that was two years after the play. Uh, yeah, they, this was his breakthrough. He had a breakthrough before he was even starred, really. He's best remembered for this. Could you tell me anything else he's done? This is the thing. We, <laughs> we talked about Rossiter and Beckinsale both had this and one other major sitcom role. Frances de la Tour is, is much much more of a recognised actress. Whereas Don Warrington, I, I, I've seen him in stuff. I sense that he's a jobbing actor, but he's never really... This will be the first line on his CV when, when they read out that he died on the news. I think he does more theatre than TV, mm. which perhaps it doesn't quite get into the awareness quite as well. But yeah, he's never he's never struggled for work from what I can tell. He does a, he has a little guest role in an episode of Red Dwarf that I always remember, very notable guest star in that. Yeah. Lots of voiceover stuff, as you might imagine. He was on the dancing programme. Right. In 2008. Okay, well. So you got to be pretty uh, well-known. I guess that's <laughs> well probably what most people would know him for then, because that's very popular, obviously. <laughs> Clearly, you and I have never seen that, but... He is also a regular in that uh, Death in Paradise program that's been on for the last 15 years. So, he, yeah, he's one of those people who crop up in things. I think he does his best work in theatre. Mm. I think that's the general idea. But what an amazing voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a silky smooth voice. It's great. And I really like him in the show. The fact that he's so unflappable and he's always the winner. He's always just so effortlessly cool. <laughs> well, I think that I love the character. I don't disagree with any of that. But my question is, we're talking about Don Warren here, not Philip. Mm-hmm. Is Don Warrington a good actor? Is it a great performance <laughs> or is it a great character? I'm not I'm not sure. I love the character. It's quite a low energy performance, isn't it? Which is what's needed. So yeah, maybe that maybe that is good acting. Not all good acting has to be flashy, does it? Yeah. It's hard to tell because I haven't seen him in enough to really mm. judge him. I haven't seen him do anything significantly different to kind of go, oh, he was in that very well, you know. He had to get angry and shout at someone. And let me ask you about the character then. Do we know what his background is? Well. Because obviously he spins this line to, to Rigsby about he's the son of an African chief. And, uh, you know, we're, the episodes that I've seen, we never really get told explicitly whether that's true or not. But now have I just missed the relevant episodes? No. I mean, what, what's your read on it? What do you think? Because why, why are you even questioning it? Like, what, what makes you think it might not be true? Because why is he in that slum? <laughs> because <laughs> he's black why where else is he gonna go people won't have him yeah yeah possibly but with that accent you then you know presumably he's come from his native country and he's gone to uh, an english boarding school and to oxford and cambridge and he's acquired that accent and that refinement and now he's living in a slum that doesn't kind of add up well it's, it's an interesting question that you ask uh because in the original play the inspiration for it was someone who was pretending to be a sort of african prince and in the play it is revealed that he is actually from Clapham. Right. uh, And it's all put on, basically. In the TV show, that is never brought out. They did a film in 1980, Mm. which was mostly cannibalised bits of other episodes that they kind of strung together. Richard Beckinsale was dead at that point, so they brought in another actor. To do the same character? It's a different character, but fulfills the exact same role. Uh, Christopher Strolley, who's in Only When I Laugh, so it was kind of oh, someone yes, Eric Chapel yeah. brought in, I suppose. He went to RADA with uh, Beckinsale, so they kind of knew each other, I guess that helped. The film doesn't work that well. It is just kind of pieced together material from the other episodes, so the structure doesn't feel that great. And as with so many of these based on sitcom films, it's it's missing the laugh track. It, it's, it's like yeah. sentences without punctuation. It, it just doesn't have the same flow, and the, the actors aren't right. Riding the waves in the same way. 
and it just never quite works. The important thing about that is, in the film, we have this reveal that um, Philip doesn't know anything about Africa. <laughs> um, Rigsby finds this out. Basically, what he he does is like, you could be a son of a chief. What do we know? Yeah, who knows how far back your, your heritage goes? Like he, Rigsby prefers to keep up the pretense, okay, because it suits them both. Because that's uh, yeah, because he doesn't want to be bested by someone he sees as inferior. Yeah, but also the fact that he has someone of class yeah. under his roof is yeah. is is good for him. Yeah, and now it's a nice moment in in the show. I'm not sure how it play, goes out in the play, but in the film, it's a nice moment that is kind of like, do you know what? We're all just happier with this artifice as it stands. So. So let's yeah. stick with it. But yeah, I think it's very interesting that they never do that in the show. I think there was a plan to do it at some point and then it just never happened. Mm. I just think that's a big error. I, I really would think that's... I think it should have been revealed like at the end of the first episode. That should be your setup. But not to Rigsby. Yeah. Alan finds yeah. out. So Phil and Alan know. And maybe Miss Jones doesn't know, or maybe she does, but Rigsby doesn't know. So we're all in on the joke that Rigsby doesn't know. And it would still you could still have the episodes all exactly as they are, but as an audience we know that Phil is getting the upper hand. Mm. Because otherwise you do have these odd bits where he's just sort of like trotting out these weird like African ritual things that just sound like nonsense. Uh, yes. And you do get a sense that he's being sarcastic sometimes, but we're supposed to take it on face value. When he talks about the love wood and he's winding up Rigsby, yeah, like th- there's no way that one could believe that's true. Yeah, you could believe that this African prince is making it up to wind Rigsby up, or it could be this bloke from yes. Clapham is making it up to wind Rigsby up. But you don't believe that that's a true story. So, so either mm. way, it's still you know we're still making fun of Rigsby here. Yeah, and when Alan believes something, that's the believable stuff I guess yeah. so like when he you know Alan believes that he has 10 wives and, and, and all that sort of stuff so I think that's a really interesting element of this show the fact that that was a choice not to reveal that personally I think I would prefer it knowing that yeah and I guess I do because I know it so I watched huh. it with that, with that in mind but that is why I sort of didn't tell you that because <laughs> um, I wanted to see what you made of that uh, and so it's interesting you brought that up yeah I uh, well I was kind of a little nervous about bringing it up because I didn't want to make myself sound too stupid <laughs> but yeah it just didn't ring true to me that's good writing then I suppose yeah. isn't it yeah ambiguity yeah. I suppose the only other character we haven't really talked about is Vienna the cat <laughs> yes now there is a, a bit of a troublesome beast apparently. I can't remember which episode it might have been the first episode where you know why is he called Vienna well because when you open that door it's good night Vienna and I thought yeah are we have we really named that cat just so we can do that gag because it's not a strong enough gag (laughs) it seems so (laughs) do you know what that feels like it's something a hangover from the play because in a play it's just a little one line away gag and then you end up with 28 episodes of uh a badly named with this cat, cat. <laughs> that's as complicated as it gets but yeah i like the cat apparently it was a bit of a troublesome thing you know he never wanted to do what he wanted it to do it always seems so docile though yeah. rossiter like grasps it firmly within his grip he never lets go of it when he needs it but it always just seems very placid it doesn't seem like it's trying to get away the episode clunk click which is where rigsby has a car yes the farcical element is that he thinks he's run over vienna and actually it's just miss jones's fur stall which they end up burning yes what's striking is how upset he is to have lost Vienna Vienna seems to be the only thing 
in his life that he really loves. It's it's very sad. Yes. It's very sad that he's, he's so upset. I like that episode because it's Phil who tells him the cat's dead, basically, and puts in this bag. And you can tell, like, when it comes back, Phil comes back later and it's like, what, you still think the cat's dead? Kind yeah. of, like, doesn't quite yeah, say that. Throwaway joke. But it's like, he always like, oh, God, it was just a throwaway joke and now it's gone too far. And what I really like about that is when he knows that it's going to be revealed, well, well, you know, Alan brings the cat in and he just grabs Alan and runs off. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like we need to get out of yeah, here before yeah, this yeah. kids I don't off. want to be around <laughs> so I quite like that there's no because it just feels like it's not built into the plot it's just like oh god uh, run away <laughs> so anyway look that's that's our episode is there anything else that you want to say about the legacy of Rising Damp that's it really I mean <laughs> there isn't much of a legacy because they there's been there was a Portuguese remake that apparently did quite well they made a pilot for an American show, but nothing came of it. And I heard an interview with Eric Chappell in which he said, you know, quite a few people have tried to come to me to remake it, and I've refused permission. I guess they've tried to Is do Eric Chappell still alive? Yes. Yeah. He's late 80s now. Yeah, but um, still still going. I guess he's not still still writing. I don't think so. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's still knocking out plays here and there. I've, I've, I've heard interviews with him fairly recently. He seems very compass mentis. You know, no reason why he shouldn't be. Typewriter. Right, that's that's rising damp. I, I wanna say though, I have to say, I think Rising Damp is up there for me as one of my favourite sitcoms. Wow. And like that's saying something. I watch a lot of sitcoms. <laughs> yeah. I because re- I would say this and Porridge uh, are kind of up really up there. And having rewatched Rising Damp now, mm. I'm sort of still happy with that. Having gone through it all again and gone through it with a fine tooth comb for all this, I think it'd be easy to break it apart. Mm. But I and I think really what good sitcom for me comes down to is good writing and good acting. Yeah, with Leonard Rossiter, it, it absolutely nails it. The range of gags that they have, and do you know what I like about Eric Chappell's writing is that it, it doesn't feel too gaggy. Like it, it's. Mm. It doesn't feel like you're building up to a punchline. It feels like character comedy. Yes. Obviously, there are punchlines as the farcical elements, but I think they work as well. So, yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, this would be in my top five, I think. That's great. I, 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 agree, with, I agree with you that I love the writing. And, you know, I've sort of quoted a few lines here. And it's not that they're joke jokes. It, it's got an, an almost yeah, exactly, Alan yeah. Bennett element to it at times with the way that, <laughs> yes. with the way that the dialogue is. I'm going to give you one last quote, which I really love. Alan says, you know what you need? Charisma. I'm not spraying myself with that stuff, mate. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, then do us a favour. Go and rate and review us on iTunes. We're a new show, and that sort of thing really helps to uh, raise your profile, gets you found in the search algorithms and all that sort of thing. So do that. That's a way to help us out. And, uh, you know, recommend us to a friend if you think you know someone who would be interested. Do go back and check out our other episodes if you haven't already, and keep an eye out for future episodes. Next week we'll be looking at something a little bit less of a classic, Dear John. Do check us out on the social medias. We are at BritcomPod. That's on uh, Instagram and Twitter. We have a Facebook group, British Sitcom History. We're on YouTube, British Sitcom History. Go and search for us, find us out, talk to us. We're really enjoying all the feedback we're getting. So do come and get involved in the conversation. Thank you for listening. See you next time.